We, uh, we believe in your Holy Spirit. We don't gather here as people who are simply gathering around a religion of morality, a religion of ethics, or a religion of any kind of uh, political power, but we gather around a religion that's centered around a person named Jesus um, that we believe uh, gives us access to supernatural power through Jesus. And so... Um, we do believe that there's another world that we live in simultaneously and that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, we believe is actually here in this time and place inside those of us who have already opened our hearts to receive and to listen to you, Jesus. And for those here this morning who aren't yet sure about you, Jesus, your Spirit is around them and always talking to them. So for all of us, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see whatever your spirit wants to tell us, and then give us the courage and the grace uh, to do what you ask us to do so we can be the kind of people you've designed us to be, and that is full of life and power that come from you alone. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. One of the great things about being a dad is I can uh, watch uh, cartoons and Disney cartoons without feeling like I'm, I don't, don't feel embarrassed. I can lay down with my kids and watch Snow White or Sleeping Beauty or whatever. But Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know the story. Uh, Snow White has, there's, there's an evil queen and she, uh, she's afraid that Snow White's going to be more beautiful than she is. You know, mirror, mirror on the wall and all that thing. She tries to kill Snow White with a poison apple. And she can only be woken up by true love's kiss. It's like every Disney story has the same theme, but there's a couple different words. And then she finally, the prince, uh, the hero of the story, finds her, thinks she's dead, gives her a kiss. And because of true love's kiss, uh, she gets married. Snow White gets married to the prince. And uh, just like every marriage we've always wanted, it's exciting, it's exhilarating, it's intoxicating, it's adventurous, it's romantic, it's intimate. They have unlimited dreams, unlimited hope, unlimited trust. It's full of companionship and partnership, unconditional love, unconditional acceptance. It's the marriage that we've always dreamed of, and that's why we like fairy tales. That's why we like Disney. But then reality hits. All right? I especially like the prince wearing his tights as he's watching, football, as watching TV eating chips. All right? Reality hits. It's not, it doesn't feel that way anymore. Yeah, it's just fun. I, you know, the dog's eating food off the carpet and all kinds of kids. And who, imagine what it smells like if we could smell, but with all those kids in diapers and stuff. But reality hits. And it's, it's like, okay, and then we come to the question, which we all come to in our own marriages, is this, is this it? I mean, I thought... That's why, we're, that's why we're captured by movies and fairy tales and all these things about love stories because we're captured by, I think it can be that, but this is what I have. And so maybe I was deluded or maybe I'm just messing it up big time because there's got to be more to marriage than just this. And I'm not, please hear me, I'm not saying uh, marriage for all of us is boring and awful and painful. But I am saying for most of us who are married, if not all of us, probably all of us, marriage is not what we once dreamed it could be. Because reality hits. Bills, you have to pay bills. Things, you know, conflict happens. So the question is, what do you do? What, what is marriage supposed to be? How does it happen? 
And why are our dreams irrational or are our dreams something God's planted in us? And does God have a way for us to have those kind of marriages? And what do we do with that? So what we're doing, uh, the next few weeks, uh, we've been doing this series, started last week, go to the next slide. They're called Dangerous Intimacy, Finding the Marriage You've Always Dreamed Of. And it's kind of like what Trevor was saying about the home run movie. We're not saying, okay, if you follow these three principles, your marriage starting tomorrow will be exactly what you've always wanted to be. But it's a journey of kind of taking the steps, following what God has to say, and understanding and listening to God. So this week we're talking about uh, an issue today. Next week we're talking about what God says about husbands. Next week about wives. One week about conflict. One week we're going to talk about sex. And all the stuff about the marriages going, that, that go into our marriages and it can cause a lot of tension, all right? So we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 5. We read the whole section last week. I'm going to read the whole one this week, and we only talk about a few parts of it. But Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 21, the book of Ephesians is a letter Paul wrote to the Christians in the Greek town of uh, not, what is now Turkey, Ephesus. And uh, he gets to this part of the book, and he's just giving really practical advice about marriage. So let me just read this. And again, we aren't going to talk, talk about all this today, but let me just uh, read it with you or read it for you. And let me say this too. Right before he gets to this section, he talks about the importance of what it means to be men and women who are filled by the spirit of Jesus. So right away, he overarches everything in this supernatural reality of there is some spiritual reality that can fill you and make you the alive, awake, and free person you've always wanted to be. And he talks about how important that is. In that overarching umbrella, he then says this, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. We'll be talking about it in a couple weeks. It may not mean what you think it means, so don't get too up. Uh, just a couple weeks we'll talk about that. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. The same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. Next one. As the Spirit, as Scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let me say this too, and I said this last week. You may not, you, there are many of you here who are here and you are not married. Either you're single, you were married, divorced, there's maybe pain, hurt, all kinds of wounds involved. And you may think, well, this isn't for me, I'm not married. When, when God talks about marriage, he's talking about who you are as a person character-wise. And in that sense, it's for all of us. So the things he talks about, and we'll be talking about some of these things, but they apply to marriage specifically, but they're the similar kind of issues that all of us deal with in human relationships. And my guess is all of us are in relationships with somebody, family or whatever. All right. Now, 
Let me talk about the three, uh, the, the, the big shocks that happen in marriage, all right? And they generally happen in this kind of order. All right, shock number one in marriage, and I think that hit me within a few weeks of marriage. Shock number one is this. This is difficult. I didn't think it was supposed to be, and if it is, I remember the first time my wife told me she was upset with me and didn't feel close to me. And I was like, we're going to get divorced. What's going on? I mean, I was just like, I, and from then on, I realized this is, this is hard. In making a marriage work, this is difficult. So that's shock number one. Sometimes you hit it really early in your marriage. Sometimes it takes a while. And then <laughs> it seems like those kind of, that, that kind of shock, it revisits about every five years or three years. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. All right, that's shock number one. Shock number two is when you realize your spouse is goofy. And I'll, goofy is my word for it. When you realize your spouse is radically self-centered. And you're like, man, she's got some anger issues. Or why does she always leave that on the kitchen counter? Does she think it's going to jump in the dishwasher by itself? Why does she talk to me that way? Why does he talk to me that way? Why doesn't she enjoy sex? Why does she spend money that way? Why does he get so angry when I do that? Those things start adding up, and some of you could fill in your blank with your own kind of questions. Why is she so clingy? Where does his addiction come from? Why does she talk to me that way? Why does she talk to me that way? I don't like that tone when he t gets that way. I don't like the tone when she gets that way. And this, this, the shock number two is they have issues. And the issues most likely existed before you came into their life as a married person, but you kind of get close and you're living with them. You're like, some of those things start sticking out. You're like, wow. And then you might conclude, as I did early in my marriage, it's a good thing God put me in her life because I must be here to help her. <laughs> and you, the sign arrogance is over me right now, right? And I remember, I remember thinking at times when Kathy would, my wife Kathy would kind of get upset about something or angry about something. And I remember, and I would get angry back, but my anger was always her fault, right? Well, I wouldn't have gotten angry. She pressed the button, so it's really her, it's still her goofiness. So shock number two is, my spouse has issues. But shock number three, which for some of us maybe doesn't come as soon as it should, and like the other ones, they get revisited throughout your married life is, oh my goodness, OMG, I have issues. My wife was right. I have issues. Why do I get defensive? Why do I think this way about money? Why do I talk that way to her when I'm in a certain mood? Why do I get so angry? Why do I think this way about sex? Where's this all coming from? Because it's, I'm putting some stuff in the pot that's not really healthy and it kind of stinks. But that's really hard to hit that shock. So you have the shock of this is difficult. Then you have the shock of my spouse has issues. And then you have this ruthlessly painful shock of, and so do I. 
And you both kind of realize that, but you neither want to talk, you don't want to talk about it too much because you're afraid they may take your honesty and pin it against you. So you kind of coexist in this, I have issues, she has issues, she knows, I knows, we know, let's go watch a movie kind of thing, right? So that's what marriage is like for a lot of us. And not that this, it's not always awful, it's just those realizations that I have some self-centeredness in my life that I didn't think was there. And if I, this is, what, this is how I thought, since I'm seeing it now and I'm only seeing it after I've been married, it must be her fault because I never saw this before. And then you start realizing, no, wait a minute, maybe what marriage does is like refines us with one another and we start seeing things about ourselves we don't like. So in the midst of that, go to the next phrase. A couple questions I'm going to ask in light of that and then we'll get to the passage of Scripture. Because this would expose maybe some of these goofy issues, these shocking issues. What would your marriage be like if you didn't have to struggle anymore with blank? That was one of the questions I put up there last, last week. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's arguing about how to raise your kids. Maybe it's arguing about your future. Or whatever it is. But your struggle as a couple probably is somehow grounded in your goofiness, self-centeredness, and her goofiness, self-centeredness. All right. But what would your marriage be like if that struggle was eliminated from your marriage? And it might be, like I've talked to some of you, some of you some that are married, it might be just this ongoing loop of conflict. They can be about any number of 55 things, but the loop is the same. Accusation, defensiveness, accusation, defensiveness, shame, accusation, a- anger, quiet. All right. Next question that might expose some of your thoughts. What would happen if your marriage, what would happen in your marriage if you could both make the shift from changing you to changing me? I mean, I have a list of things my wife could change if she would just kind of read it and follow it, right? And I tend to think, okay, if my wife would just stop trying to change me, then things would be better. Well, then what I'm doing, all I'm doing is I'm trying to change her from changing me, right? Instead of just saying, what? Is it that God wants me to deal with as a husband? Not, if she stopped doing this, I wouldn't do this. No, keep that out of the mix. So if you're talking about your husband or your wife, what is it, what would it change in your marriage if both of you just said, I'm going to work on seeing how God wants to change me? Me. Not, well, me, but if they all, me. What would your marriage be like if all you were concerned about was changing me. Now, next slide. So the advice in the midst of all that, the advice that God gives us, which some of us think, well, it's not really practical, it sounds kind of religious, and we're just going to look at this one line today from Ephesians chapter 5. God says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, those are words that sound kind of religious. I'm not really sure how that's going to help me figure out why my wife thinks I'm selfish. I mean, it's kind of like this spiritual sounding language, but how is this going to help my wife and I? How does this help us? And what, is this the best Paul could do? Is this the best God can tell us? Submit to one another, because what do these words even mean? Let's talk about this for a little bit. All right, submit. Submit is a word that in our culture today, it has a lot of bad connotations or negative weight, heaviness, Um, But in the biblical sense, submission really simply meant you put yourself under someone else for their well-being. 
like, for example, submission is not this. Think about the roundabouts you drive through in Bloomington. And some of you still haven't figured out roundabout decorum. Get online and figure it out, all right? Just get, figure it out, all right? But if I go up to a roundabout and somebody's already in the roundabout, I let them go. That's not submission. That's just letting them take their turn. So submission isn't just simply, oh, it's her turn, my turn, her turn, my turn, her turn, my turn. But neither is submission something that you're forced to do. Somebody holds a gun to your head, you will do this. You will submit to me. Because submission in the biblical sense is something you do, you choose yourself. No one tells you to submit. A husband can't tell his wife, you submit to me. And a wife can't tell his husband, well, the Bible says you submit to me too. You make that choice yourself. You're not forced to do that. So what is submission? And well, like for, in a real small way, if I'm at Kroger and I'm in line for groceries and there's somebody behind me, maybe has crying kids or whatever, me submitting would be to say, okay, wh- why don't you go first, ma'am? I, I'm letting them, I'm giving up my own right, my will for their well-being. I'm taking something that belongs to me and letting them have it for their well-being. Now you might think, well, that's kind of easy. But then let's keep the Kroger example. But what if I'm in a hurry? Then submitting to their well-being is a little bit harder. Or what if I know the person, I mean, I don't like them then if anything, I want them to stay longer, right? Because there are certain times we're submitting for the well-being of the, hey, why don't you go first? I'll go back here. Sometimes that's really easy. But it's the times when I'm in a hurry, if I'm just grumpy, if I'm really into my own, into my own moment, I'm not even aware of people around me. And it's like, why would I want to let them go first? I mean, they got like 55 things in their shopping cart. And this is the 15 line. This is the speed line, right? Do you ever do that? You count. I know you do because I do. I count people. Wait a minute. It says 15. I, you have 17. <laughs> so no, I'm not letting you in front of me because you have 17. You broke the rule, right? And I'm not going to submit to somebody who breaks rules. I'm not going to use what belongs to me and let them have in front of me, Right? That's, that's the idea of submission. You, you let what belongs to you to someone else. It's the, the, the willfully giving up of your own will and rights for the well-being of another. It is not passivity like, oh, I'll just let everybody, I'm going to be a doormat. Everybody's going to walk in front of me in line. That's not submission. And neither is it forced. It's a willful choice to back away from what rightfully belongs to you and let the other have what they need. All right? So you think about that in marriage. Paul's saying to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's basically saying, look out first for the interests of your spouse, not you. And that can get complicated because we start thinking about, oh, is it interests or my desires? What if my desire is this? My spouse wants this. How do, don't, don't go there yet. Just understand that what, what, we're, what we're commanded to do is to defer to our spouse consider their interests above our own is what Paul even repeats in the book of Philippians when he talks about the attitude of Christ. So submission to one another is I will use what is rightfully mine, my rights, my strength, my abilities, my gifts, and I will use it for the sake of the other, the other's advancement, the other's growth, the other's pleasure, whatever. 
So I'll use what belongs to me, and I willfully choose. Right? Again, sounds easy enough, but then there's all kinds of things get complicated. And we'll talk about that here in a second. Now, let's look at the second part of this line. Uh, no, no, go back, go back, Paul. Send this up. Stay here for a second. Stay back in the other one. Paul, back it up just one off this picture here. Yeah, there you go. First line, submit to one another. Second line, out of reverence for Christ. All right. Reverence for Christ. What does that mean? I mean, you think reverence, we tend to think of, you know, that kind of thing. Reverence, I got to be reverent, so we walk around church quietly. The word reverence in some translations is actually translated the fear of Christ. The Greek word is, is phobos, where we get our word phobia. So, you know, in the Bible, it also talks about the, often talks about the fear of God, the fear of Christ. And you're like, well, that's weird. So I submit, I let my wife, I do things for my wife's well-being because I'm afraid of God. Is that what the Bible says? Out of fear? Like God's going to whack me if I don't? No, that's not what it says. I mean, God's not going to motivate you by the fear of him whacking you. The fear of the Lord, the fear of Christ, so let's say this is out of the fear of Christ. When you look at the Old and the New Testament, the fear of God is not this cowering kind of, he's going to hit me. I better do what he tells me to do. The fear of God in the Old Testament is often associated with joy. The fear of God brings joy and happiness. We're told in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that forgiveness, when we experience the forgiveness of God, it increases our fear of him. So the fear of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when people were overwhelmed when they saw an angel, they weren't like f- afraid of getting punished and of shame. They were overwhelmed with something about God that was relationally powerful and amazing. It wasn't the fear of, I'm afraid, I'll be out. Yeah, I'll let my wife go first because God's going to be mad at me if I don't. No, it's more of the sense of submit to one another out of the overwhelming, awesome emotion you have when you see Jesus. Not out of fear. Now, you might think, well, what does that mean, though? Okay, what? Submit to one another out of this overwhelming response to Jesus. And let me explain that. Now we'll go to the next slide, Paul. Two stories in the life of Jesus that, for, for me, and maybe for you too, generated in me somewhat of what I would call an overwhelming sense of awe and fear about Jesus. Not afraid fear, but the first one is Jesus washing disciples' feet. Now let's think about this event for a second, and let's go with me to the upper room when he's washing disciples' feet. All right, they all come, custom in that time, they have dirty feet, they have sandals, dusty roads. Servants of the household would be by the door, near the door, whatever, and would wash your feet off to get all the dust off so you kind of come in the house clean, all right? Um, that's what the, that was the practice. So the disciples and Jesus all walk into this room, getting ready for the meal, and the custom is they're supposed to be a foot washer. Now, we don't know if there was somebody who was supposed to be that didn't show up, but it's not happening. So if you're me and you're with me, Here's what, here's what I'm thinking. Let's, let's, just say, let's say that I'm Peter. I'm thinking, you know, Thomas hasn't done much serving lately. He ought to wash feet. Or, you know, Bartholomew hasn't done... I cleaned up after the meal last night. Bartholomew didn't do anything. I think it's his turn to wash feet. Or, you know, I don't think Thomas has changed a diaper for a while. And I've done all the diaper changing. 
And so Thomas ought to be washing feet. I mean, it's his turn, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. If you were there, I'm not sure any of us would have jumped to the towel in the basin to wash feet. We'd be like, okay, whose turn is it? Who, who needs to be doing some good works to kind of get some points? Because I've done a lot. I mean, Peter, James, and John might say, hey, we're part of the inner circle with Jesus. We have more important things to do. Um, who's going to be taking care of that? And then Jesus does it. You think Peter and Thomas and Bartholomew, you think all that? My guess is all of their arguments for whose turn it was went away pretty fast, and they're all just kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus is just washing their feet? It wasn't his turn. He didn't have to earn anything. He chose, and actually it it says in the Gospel of John chapter 13, when he did that, he was showing them the full extent of his love. And he washes their feet. And I have a hard time emptying the dishwasher when I think it's my wife's turn, right? So submit to one another out of the awesome, overwhelming response of what you see Jesus can be like toward people. Because it wasn't Jesus' turn to do anything like that. But what he says is, if you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. If you want to be great, you have to serve. And so, again, if you're like me, whether you're a husband or a wife, whatever, you think, well, you know, I think it's his turn to do that today. I did that with the kids yesterday. Or, who's putting the dishes away? Or, you know, I think it's kind of his turn to clean the car because I did it la- or it's my turn to do what I want to do and choose the restaurant because I think he chose the last three times and we start doing this whose turn is it kind of game or whose responsibility is it and we start playing this game and, and Paul says stop the stupid games do it for the well-being of the other because you can you, you begin to see what how Jesus does that for people and he doesn't play the scorekeeping games. Sure, it may be your wife's job to do the laundry, as you've decided in your house. I mean, it's not, it's not a biblical job. I'm not saying that. But maybe if she's stressed, maybe you can do that for her that day. Or sure, your husband's job is to mow the lawn. Maybe you've figured that out or designed that out that way. Well, it doesn't mean you can't do it for him someday. But we kind of get in this division of labor. Well, I do this, she does that, I do. And then we have these expectations. I just wish my wife would figure out that this is what I've said before. Those dishes don't jump in the dishwasher on their own. Somebody has to put them there, right? I wish she'd figure that out. And my wife, there's all kinds of things she wishes I would figure out. She just told me last night one of her big pet peeves is that I bite my fingernails, all right? That's not a sin, okay, not a sin. Pet peeve, but it bugs her. And so we, have, we start playing these, okay. Now, that doesn't mean she should go pick up my fingernails on the floor, though, either. So anyway, it's a side, side story. But submit to one another because this is what Jesus does. He's submitting himself to the disciples. So submission is not this lowliness, passivity. It's an incredibly active, powerful, strong thing to do. Okay, that's event number one. Event number two... Um, and I, I've mentioned this before, but I always like to tell this. When I was first saw the movie The Passion of the Christ uh, in the theater, Mel Gibson, and this part of the movie, I knew the story. I knew Jesus, what he said on the cross. I knew what he said and who he said it to and when he died. But I remember when he said, 
in the midst of all this torture when he said, Father, forgive these people. They do not know what they're doing. Of course, he said it with kind of strain and stress and pain. And I remember sitting in the movie theater and whispering out loud to myself. I was just watching it by myself. I remember saying to myself, how the hell can he say that? I mean, I was that shocked. I was that overwhelmed. Because I thought, okay, I can forgive somebody if I've had time to heal. A little bit of space, a little bit of time. He's forgiving somebody in the midst of his being hurt by them. With no good end in sight, humanly speaking. And he's forgiving them. I was overwhelmed by that. I remember thinking how small my forgiveness muscle was at that time in my life. Like, and I thought, I, I have a hard time forgiving that person, but, and they did this to me, but this is what's happening to Jesus, but he forgives them why it's happening. I remember thinking how small I am. I want to be like that. So you may be married right now, and there may be some issue that your spouse is consistently and continually hurting you on. They may know it. They may not know it. Submitting to the other out of reverence for Christ would be how do you still treat them? How do you still show them grace and generosity out of the spirit of Jesus and forgive them? Now, I'm not saying avoid having a hard... I mean, there may be conversations you have to have. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the response we typically have as humans in our marriages, if somebody's hurting me, either I want to hurt them back or I'm just going to avoid them. I'm not going to, I'll be, I'll be polite, but I won't be warm. I'll get things done, but I won't be pleasant. Because she needs to feel the weight of her hurting of me. It's called passive aggressive. It's like wrong, bad, hurtful. It's not at all submissive to my wife when I do that. I'm not submitting for her well-being out of my understanding of what Jesus can do. Okay, but here's the question, though. Okay, okay, let's, then the answer to the question is be like Jesus. Okay, that's easy. That solves my marriage troubles. Be like Jesus. Then the bigger question is, go to the next slide. How do I do that? I mean, one of the things that's one of my pet peeves is, I keep going to talk about, my wife does 98% of the stuff around the house. It's the 2% that bug me anyway. But, you know, she'll leave stuff in the dish trainer that's drying and it's already dried and I'll think it's not going to jump up in the cabinet by itself. So somebody probably needs to put that up there. And I come home from work and there's stuff in this drainer that was there in the morning. And I'm like, yeah, it didn't jump up on its own, did it? I wonder why she didn't put that up. And I will serve, submit to her well-being and I'll put it up, but the whole time my attitude is like a little bit rank. She did it again. Did it again. Put the silver over here, didn't it? But on the outside, I'm serving her. But there's times, and this happened once recently, there was times where I was doing that, and I thought, I actually prayed to myself quiet, prayed to God quietly. Okay, God, I, I want to do this, but I want to do it with the spirit of Jesus toward my wife. So can you change me? I don't want to be this. What the realization is I need internal change that is a supernatural reality that can only happen if I open myself up supernaturally to the spirit of Jesus. So what I'm saying? Because marriage is not a set of principles. 
If, there, if it was, we would just obey the principles, have a good marriage. There are principles that eventually point us to, yes, you need to be this way. You need to be serving like Jesus washing their feet. Yes, you need to forgive your spouse in all situations. But you cannot be that way unless you allow Jesus to have full access to your heart to get at those things that are causing you to be lacking in generosity toward them. Not, right now, it's not about them. It's about you. It's not about them. It's about you. Them, they have to deal with God themselves, and now you have conversations eventually. But as I'm putting up dishes or I'm thinking about the way in which my wife said a slightly mistoned word that kind of hurt my feelings, okay, th then I have to realize, okay, God, I want to serve her. I want to be forgiving of her, but I want to do it with the right spirit. I, I don't want my behavior just to match Jesus because that's nothing. We can all do that. So there are times where you simply, in the midst of forgiving your spouse, serving your spouse, they may not even know it, but you may be desperately, quietly saying to God, God, help me. Help me know how to respond in grace and mercy. Not in, not in this stoic, noble, arrogant, spiritual response of, sure, I'll wash your feet even though you just heard me, but inside I really have deep contempt for you. Right? God, help me. I don't want to be that way. I want to be able to be generous, forgiving, and I do really want my wife's interest to take precedence over mine, no matter how many things she has in her shopping cart, no matter how much in a hurry I am. But God, that you have to change that in me because I can do that behavior, but then I'm standing behind her in line and I'm seething. I'm ticked off. Like if she would just get her act together, I wouldn't have to let her go first. Instead of saying, God, I want to be able to do that. I want to be the kind of person that does that naturally. Christianity is not a series. It's not a set of behaviors you do. It's the reality of the Holy Spirit filling you. And then those behaviors become natural in you. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to fake it. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what Paul means. Look for ways to serve your spouse, their interests first, out of your overwhelming response, out of response of, well, that's how Jesus was around people. But then you have to come to the realization of, I can't do it without the spirit of Jesus. You can't pretend to be Jesus without the spirit of Jesus. I'll say that again. You cannot pretend to be Jesus to your spouse unless you have the spirit of Jesus. Because then you're just play acting. And you're not dealing with the contempt and the anger and the lack of forgiveness in your heart. You cannot be Jesus to your spouse without the spirit of Jesus to your spouse. And we'll finish with this. We did this the last couple of weeks, but I'm going to keep encouraging you to pray this way for your spouse. And if you're not married, pray this way for somebody that you have a hard time getting along with because that will be good practice for marriage, right? Paul says this, and this is, this is just the middle part of the prayer, but 319 of Ephesians. And I've, and I've prayed this over the last few weeks for my wife during those times where I'm kind of pretending to be Jesus to her, but I know my heart's not always there. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. So my prayer is, God, can you help Kathy experience your love? Though she's not going to experience it, but God, I want her, I really desperately want, I want her to understand your love for her. And I want God, I want her to be complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from you. 
I tell you what, when I pray that for my wife, something in my heart does click and change. Because I'm not saying, God, fix her. God, get her to stop doing that. God, will you get her to start doing this? Because I need that from her. My prayer is simply, God, will you, I, I want, more than anything, I want Kathy to experience her love, and I want Kathy to know the life and power that comes from you. Period. God, the rest I'll let you figure out. And I'll, I'll do what I, you ask me to do. I'm going to love my wife well. I'll have the conversations. I need to have the conversations. But ultimately, this is my prayer. And I'm going to challenge those of you who are married. If you remember nothing else from this morning, E319, Ephesians 319. Pray, use, pray for your spouse this week. One day, two days, every day. When you're ticked off, when you're happy, whatever. Um, and let's pray. God, we, uh, we know. <laughs> the problem is we don't know. What, the problem is not we don't know what to do. Because we do, God. We know we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We know wives are supposed to respect and honor their husbands. We, we know those things. It's not our lack of knowing that is the problem. It's our lack of your spirit inside us that becomes the root of the problem. And it's our fear of giving you full access to our hearts that keeps that from happening because we're not sure yet, God, if we trust you completely to give you unlimited, unhindered, unconditional access to those parts of our hearts that we've long since locked away. And it's off limits not only to ourselves but even to you. So, God, would you even show us those things that become the root of all these issues in our marriages? Would you show us those things, and would you not shock us with the fact that we are self-centered, but would you shock us with your response to us in the midst of that, with your overwhelming love and your forgiveness and your mercy so we can be healed and whole, and we can bring that healing and wholeness to our marriages and to our families. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.